Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 315, Space Biology. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight and more. We talk a lot on this podcast of flying humans in space for better understanding what happens to the human body and how it adapts from living in the comfort of 1G, breathing fresh air and watching the sun rise and set once a day, to taking away gravity in a spacecraft with regenerative life support and 16 sunrises and sunsets in a day. It can be quite a change, so we investigate this adaptation, particularly in humans, from many different perspectives, whether it be looking at vision, exercise, physiology, fluid shifts, and so on. Many of the things we learn in space about the human body can also improve life on Earth. We can also get a better understanding of those basic mechanisms for adaptation from studying other living organisms in space. From bacteria and fungi to animals, living organisms are used on Earth to model human disease, responding to stress and more. In space, they can offer a unique window into answering some interesting questions. To help us get a better understanding into this complex and fascinating world of space biology, we're lucky to bring in Dr. Sharmila Bhattacharya, Program Scientist for Space Biology within the Biological and Physical Science Division at NASA's headquarters in Washington. A seasoned scientist, Sharmila has done research and developed hardware and payloads for supporting space shuttle, international space station, and even small satellites for decades. All right, let's get right into it. Sharmila Bhattacharya, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Thank you so much, Gary, for having me on this. I'm I'm really excited to be on. <laughs> we, uh, you know, it's funny. We uh, we were talking a little bit beforehand. You've been on my list of someone to talk to for quite some time. I remember um, uh, when I for for a while there, I was the International Space Station public affairs officer, and um, there were some fruit fly experiments happening on station, and that would just super intrigued me. And just through a variety of circumstances, we just couldn't we couldn't connect. But I I got to tell you, Shamrila, I am excited to be able to connect with you today. This is uh, you got some interesting stuff going on. Thank you, Gary. Yes, we sure do. You know, the <laughs> fundamental research that we do in space biology, I think, is is intriguing, fascinating, and we learn a lot from from these studies. Yes, exactly, and that's and that's precisely what I want to go into. I usually start, though, Shamrila, with my guests by getting a sense of their background. And really what led you to to where you are today? I wonder what in your life guided you to joining NASA and performing all of these amazing studies? How did you end up where you are? Yeah, you know, that is really interesting, Gary. And I think something perhaps that happens to a lot of people where, um, you know, you don't really know uh, where <laughs> life is going to lead you. And so, you know, the thing that I did know, though, from a very early stage is I really loved science and I really enjoyed doing science. So, uh, you know, I actually I was doing my um, graduate research, my uh, Ph.D., uh, at, you know, at Princeton University and working on nothing related to spaceflight. I was 
using the yeast cell, you know, the, the same kind of yeast that you use to make bread or, or beer, uh, if you're over the age of you know, 21, hopefully, um, that, um, uh, you know, but, but serves as an extremely useful uh, model organism uh, on Earth, for example, for looking at important questions like, you know, how does, how do cancer cells develop and grow and, and regulation of, of uh, uh, cancer-causing genes, um, how they function in cells and, and cause unregulated growth. So, and that was something that I was working on uh, for my PhD and then for my postdoctoral research. And that's when uh, I moved uh, to Stanford University. And I was working, then I, I started working on another uh, model organism, also important for, for fundamental research. And that was with the fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster. Um, and there I was looking at the brain and how the brain functions, how the neurons talk to each other, you know, something that's very important for us to understand for humans, but but really for any uh, a biological system, a multicellular biological system that has a, a central nervous system. Again, nothing to do with space. And then, uh, you know, this was the, the time when we still use newspapers to uh, look for, you know, jobs or look at job ads. And so I was actually working on a, on putting together a publication from the research I was doing in my postdoctoral fellowship and um, happened to find an ad in the newspaper uh, from NASA. And really, I had never thought of NASA and spaceflight research before, uh, especially in the context of biology. And lo and behold, this particular advertisement asked for a PhD scientist who had worked with the yeast model and the Drosophila model um, <laughs> for spaceflight research. And, and really, it stopped me dead in my tracks. And I thought to myself, I would be a fool not to apply for something that, that was just so completely aligned with what I had done in the past. And uh, yeah, fast forward, you know, after a, a few interviews and being hired by NASA, I have been at NASA now for over 24 years um, conducting science and research and managing uh, science and research uh, uh, for spaceflight work in the space biology program. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's like that ad had uh, Sharmila at the beginning of it. Hey, Sharmila, we're looking for <laughs> someone with a background who has done research with yeast. Um, you know, like it was calling to you specifically. What a what a wonderful time to open up the newspaper, and it just so happened to be right there. Um, exactly. You know, you said uh, one thing you mentioned off in the very beginning, Sharmila, was you said you were always interested in science. And I wonder if we backtrack even for, further where that might yeah. have sparked. If you got like, you know, if you if you opened up a Christmas present and there was like a, a you know, a, a mini laboratory, like a play laboratory set that maybe did it. Was, was there something early in your childhood that really started you off in the right direction to really love science? Yeah, you know, that is actually, that's a great question, Gary, because 
you know, to be honest, I also loved English. I loved writing. Mm. Um, I loved history, you know, and I loved all the sciences and I loved math. So really, you're right that at some point it must have been a bit of a struggle for me uh, to figure out which which I really wanted to pursue later in life. And I'll tell you some of the now that I think back now that you're asking, you know, what were some of those influences that might have kind of nudged me along the path that I did uh, eventually choose. And I think it was a combination of factors. One, I had a a really dynamic and um, enthusiastic and a fabulous biology teacher in middle school and and, uh, high school. Uh, They were motivating. They were enthusiastic themselves. And I remember that was certainly, I also remember we had a biology textbook uh, in middle school, I remember in sixth grade. Um, and I actually remember, even today, I remember images from that book. It was a, it was a really um, well-written, beautiful images uh, in it. And I remember even the diagram of the inner year and how, how the inner year functions. And, you know, Fast forward many, many decades later, uh, you know, how the inner year functions is very important to NASA, you know, because an astronaut, when you're in spaceflight, um, uh, you know, your orientation of how you orient to gravity is actually determined by the functioning of your inner year, right? Mm -hmm. And again, you know, just those little things that fall into place, you know, I remember loving that chapter, um, and because it was something I had never imagined that something in your ear actually helped you understand, you know, your orientation with respect to gravity so that when you're about to fall, you know, you can write yourself. And it's because of this vestibular function in your inner ear. So so I think it was that it was my parents, you know, mm-hmm. who were uh, awesome in terms of supporting my love of science. Neither of them were scientists. My mom, mother was an English literature major and my father was an economics major. Hmm. Um, and then he went on to be a pilot. So, of course, he loved the skies. But um, other than that, I guess, I, and my brother was an English literature and economics major. So I guess I was the odd one out in the family, but my family loved that and encouraged me. So so I think it was a combination of all these factors, possibly, that that led me in this direction. Yeah, the inspiration and the support structure to, to point you in the right direction. I, th- I got to tell you, it's make or break with the teachers. I, um, I remember one year, yeah. the year that I did, uh, I think it was ninth grade for me. Uh, I was in biology, and that that teacher, I remember putting slides of textbook chapters onto a projector and sitting there silently while we copied um, what was on the chapters. It was as interesting as biology was, that particular teacher did not inspire me. Uh, where the next year, I remember sitting in a chemistry class, and instead of, you know, and day one, instead of opening up a textbook, we went to the back of, yeah. the, of the class into the laboratory, and she sat down, she put down these different chemicals and was lighting, you know, was lighting the desk on fire. And we're like, I'm like, okay, yes. now now I'm in the right <laughs> science field. Yeah, it is, yeah, as, <laughs> it can really, truly make or break your experience yes. in what you end up pursuing. Yeah. And I remember being seriously interested in biology but turn more towards chemistry at least and obviously 
I didn't end up pursuing it. That was, you know, as, as interested as I was, I couldn't quite grasp yeah. the material as, as well as some, some of my colleagues, but, uh, and, and other students, but I tell you, it was, it, it was so different. It is so great yeah. to have a teacher that you, that can inspire you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, Sharmila, you said you have been at NASA for 24 years doing a variety of things. I wonder where you started and um, if you could tell us about some of the research that you've done over the years and over time um, to get you where you are today. And we're going to talk about BPS, Biological and Physical Sciences, where you are now. But I wonder your yeah. your career progression at NASA through those 24 years that got you and some of the some of the highlights along the way. Yes, sure. So, so yeah, so, you know, it's been an interesting ride and continues to be an interesting ride for me uh, because you really, you know, every turn and bend, you learn something new, something exciting is happening around you. Either you're part of that exciting journey or you're listening to your colleagues who are part of those other uh, you know, varied uh, uh, stories, uh, you know, about, you know, folks bringing back, uh, you know, regolith from uh, an asteroid, you know, that has never been done before or, or, you know, landing a craft on the surface of Mars, right? So there's always excitement uh, around you. And um, so in my particular case, um, over the years, I have worked with a variety of different experiments. And, and to be honest with you, Gary, some of them, you know, I'm probably not even remembering right now after <laughs> having been here for, for many years as I have. But, for example, I've worked on experiments um, uh, to do with the brain, you know, understanding how the brain functions, how that can alter in space flight. I've worked with using... Uh, simple uh, organisms like uh, the yeast, uh, you know, as we talked about before, it's a unicellular system. It's it's what's called a eukaryotic uh, cell, though. So it's cell structure, cellular structure is actually very similar to our cells, you know, the human cells or mammalian cells. So we can learn a lot from some of those uh, simple experiments. I've also worked with uh, experiments with Drosophila melanogaster, the fruit fly, which is multicellular, but also simple and robust. Its genetics are extremely well characterized. So that helps us understand different molecular pathways that are important in the body when you are put in this un- in the, this unique environment of space. Um, I've also worked with experiments to do with mammalian cells and culture, you know, in, in, in tissue culture and in petri dishes and and understanding how they function. So so a, a wide variety, you know, as well as other, you know, animal uh, uh, studies, you know, with other model systems like like rodents, etc. And all of them are really important in us understanding how this spaceflight environment with its unique uh, features, you know, that we don't typically experience on Earth. For example, uh, you could be in an environment with no gravity, you know, when you are in orbital flight on your way to the moon or on the way to Mars, uh, you will essentially be experiencing very little to no gravity. And all of us, you know, all of us Earth-based biological systems, we have evolved, uh, you know, over centuries, you know, very, very long time 
to exist in an Earth's 1G gravitational field. So that's one big difference. And then when you're on the surface of the moon, when you get there, when you land, or you're on the surface of Mars, you're in partial gravity, you're in fractional gravity, where your gravity is less than 1G, uh, but it's more than the microgravity you were in when you were on your way to the moon or Mars. So you know, that novel environment of, of either partial gravity or very little gravity. And then the other, you know, there are many other factors, but, but one of them, for example, is uh, uh, additionally radiation, right? So there's radiation coming from the sun. There's radiation around you in this, you know, in this galactic uh, a cosmic environment, which um, is different and and is definitely a little bit higher than what you would experience if you were either in on the Earth's surface, where it's the lowest and we are the most protected on the Earth's surface. But as you go higher above the Earth's surface, you get uh, increasing levels of exposure to these different types of, of uh, space radiation. So... Uh, you know, combination of these factors, as well as being in an enclosed environment, um, gives you, uh, uh, for example, an elevation in carbon dioxide. When you're in any kind of an enclosed space with a lot of people breathing, you know, around you, as we find when, for example, we're in an aircraft, you know, before they turn on the air circulation, you know, for little bits of time there, uh, carbon dioxide can really build up in those environments. And it's the same, it can be the same in these enclosed habitats in space. And so with all of that in mind, right, we're talking about a unique environment where we really need to understand because we want to make sure that our crew members that go to these environments are comfortable. Uh, you know, they, they take with them what they need in terms of countermeasures, medicines, you know, anything that we need when, when we go on travel, right, to, to different places uh, to make sure that we acclimate and adapt to those um, environments. Uh, that's what we need to ensure. And, and that's where space biology comes in, is really understanding the fundamental changes in the body, uh, making sure that we have a grasp and we can anticipate all of those changes and that we can take with us what we need in order to ensure that we're comfortable on our journey. Mm -hmm. So this this might help uh, digest this a little uh, better, Sharmila. Is uh, you know on the, on this podcast we've had a number of folks from uh, human research um, on on mm -hmm. to talk about that, which of course you you know you're talking about how um, how humans react to the to um, uh, the space environment and samples right. are a huge part of that, right? We, we talk about saliva, yes. blood. We talk about urine and, and different these right. different ways of measuring changes over time that happen to the human body. What perspective exactly. when we talk about model organisms to add that to the portfolio yep. of our or understanding? How does that round out our perspective a little bit better on? how adaptation works in space. Yeah, exactly. Excellent question. So, yes, I mean, think about it. With When we use humans as subjects for our study, which we actually do all the time, exactly like you mentioned, you know, humans are one of our most, uh, you know, uh, interesting and one of our 
you know, primary model organisms, if you please, uh, for studies in space, because we really want to understand what's going on there. However, think about the limitations there, right? Uh, as you just mentioned, you can only collect samples such as saliva, urine, you know, take swabs from the surface of the skin, you know, maybe, you know, some uh, flakes of skin or hair that come, you know, loose, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a limit as to what kind of samples you can collect from the human. Now, nonetheless, you know, blood, et cetera, you do get very valuable information from all of those samples. But now think about the fact that um, when you fly a cohort of crew, maybe you have four, if you're lucky, you have four or, or a couple more, you know, people going on a particular mission, right? Um, and these four people, for example, that are going on this mission, that is the same duration, that have uh, experience the same sort of launch, you know, experiences and gravity changes during launch and during their stay and during return. Um, so they, you know, they have a common experience. But but just think about the fact that there are only four maybe human beings, if you're lucky, undergoing that experience. And those four people are probably as different as you and I are different in terms of, you know, height, our genetic makeup, uh, how our bodies react in stressful environments, um, how strong our immune systems are in order to, you know, counter an infection, you know, some kind of a microbial infection that that we may face, right? So, so the fact is that we are essentially, we can be extremely varied unless you and I were twins, which we are not, hmm. um, you know, it, and even within twins, you know, there are some major differences, as, as you can tell, you know, those of us who know twins. Hmm. Um, and so especially because very often they are fraternal twins, which means that they can be just, you know, as similar or as different as any, you know, brothers or sisters, uh, you know, can be to each other. So so the advantage of using some of these model organisms is that you can get a population, often a very large population of identical, you know, genetically identical organisms. I mean, take fruit flies, right? In a little bread box size experiment, which is, you know, things that we have flown in the past, that I have flown in the past to do science, mm -hmm. I can have literally thousands of flies go into space, breed, and then give me that next generation from which I can get extensive data about how their brain functioned, how their heart functioned, um, how their immune system functioned, right? And I can correlate all of that and say, okay, you know, when I integrate all of this information from thousands of animals, these are the subtle changes I see, right? And and that's the other point I wanted to make is the subtlety of changes, right? So when now, you know, we know that humans have gone into space and come back perfectly safe, right? We've, we've gone to the moon during the Apollo years, but for a very short period of time, relatively speaking. However, on the International Space Station, we have had crew there for, you know, even over a year sometimes, right? So for pretty long stretches of time. Um, and they, you know, do their job and they come back. So 
However, we also know that they undergo changes. You know, they they definitely face differences in the spaceflight environment. And so we also know that some of these changes can be quite subtle. Hmm. So when you're looking for subtle changes, that's where the statistics and the population size becomes important. Because if you can have thousands of identical organisms on which to do your science research to see how the the biology is functioning, then you can really be sure that these are indeed the changes that we're seeing, because maybe you'll see a 20% change in some particular bodily function in your heart, you know, cardiovascular function or immune function, right? Um, But you will not see that change. You will not be able to register that change if you use four different human beings, some males, some females, some who are, you know, 40 years old, others maybe who are 30 or 50, right? So, So all of these factors make a difference in science. And it's all about reliability of your data, reproducibility of your data. And that's where model organisms can really help us. Amazing, Sharmila. And um, to to get an even better understanding, I'm, I want to drill down for a second to see if, and and maybe this is putting you on the spot, but I just wonder if, um, you know, like you said, you've you've had a a lot of experience just at NASA, um, and even before NASA, but really at NASA working with a lot of model organisms and and these studies over time. I wonder if you can recall, uh, maybe it's a moment or maybe uh, some particular instance where maybe something that you were observing surprised you or maybe something you were observing over time confirmed a hypothesis you got. I wonder if you can take us to a moment in time and reflect on something that kind of pushed our understanding of what happens to the human body and what happens to um, living organisms in space that took us a step further and something that maybe that excited you in a moment. Yes, absolutely, Gary. So let me give you two examples. Perfect. uh, Just because (laughs) (laughs) science can be so exciting. And, and, you know, because the spaceflight environment is so novel, a lot of what we learn from there is just, you know, so intriguing and interesting and different um, uh, that it's, you know, hard for me to to, uh, limit it to one. So let me give you two examples from, from my personal experience that I found to be interesting, exciting, and rewarding at the same time. So one of the studies that uh, that I did with my team, and, and remember in all of this, you know, the, the teams that we work on are absolutely critical. You know, no one, especially science, is, is a team sport. You know, none of us do this alone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I've worked always with with postdoctoral fellows and students and and young research scientists and more experienced research scientists and colleagues, right? So so um, which makes it all the more exciting because as you discussed you know, the results, uh, you, you sort of really help each other uh, grow in your understanding of, of the data that you're looking at. So, so the, one, the first example I wanted to give is we did this study using uh, a bacteria called Serratia marcescens, which is an important uh, 
pathogenic bacteria uh, for humans as well. Um, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of, you know, in hospitals, for example, where you have immune compromised patients, uh, these uh, serratia marcescens are what is called opportunistic pathogens. So, so they kind of um, take hold in folks who are unable to counter, uh, you know, uh, uh, their infections in the body. Mm. And so this, this is something that's important for us to understand. And so, uh, you know, the space flight environment being a stressful environment for, for biological systems, we wanted to see what happens to serratia marcescens when they're in space, when they're exposed to the space flight environment. And what we found was that, uh, when we brought, the, when we took serratia to spaceflight, let them grow for a few generations, and then brought them back, and the fruit fly again, you know, for the reasons we talked about, you know, you can you can infect a lot of fruit flies with the serratia uh, marcescens uh, bacteria. And, and then really do a very thorough statistical measurement of the virulence factor or the pathogenicity factor, you know, um, uh, on, on a model organism like uh, the fruit fly, which is also a host uh, that is infected by serratia just like humans are. Um, hmm. And so when we brought this serratia back from flight and we infected uh uh, fruit flies with it, we found that there was definitely increased pathogenicity and virulence from uh, these infections with only with the space foam bacteria, you know, compared to the ground control that had never gone to space, there was a marked increase in pathogenicity. And so, you know, again, being a scientist and a molecular biologist, I wanted to get to the the bottom line of what is happening, what is causing this, right? And um, and and the basic understanding as we know it today, so I'll, I'll tell you exactly what we got to understanding, you know, what is the basis of that. But let me, before I say that, let me set the stage by saying that we think that there are possibly different mechanisms it could be that there are different mechanisms for different microbial systems um, of how they may change in their virulence or pathogenicity uh, in these different stressful environments. So, so for serratia specifically that we were studying, we wanted to really understand what's going on. And, you know, did this really thorough study uh, in our, our team uh, where we started to look at what are some of those genes whose expressions are changing? What are some of those molecular pathways inside the body? You know, well, in this case, we should say inside the cell um, of these serratia uh, bacterial cells that are making them more virulent to the uh, fruit fly host. And what we found was actually that it was an it was an increased efficiency or effectiveness of utilization of this amino acid called asparagine. Hmm. Now, what do I mean by all of this? So asparagine is an amino acid. Uh, we, we take in amino acids often in our diet. And uh, asparagine plays a very important role in forming uh, many different cellular proteins inside the cells, not only in human cells, but also in bacterial and other cells. And so it was 
this efficiency of using, utilizing this amino acid as far gene inside the cell that we think made the difference. And so we did lots of different assays and experiments, you know, and as you were saying, you were interested in chemistry, a lot of, of these biochemical assays to understand, you know, how is the bacteria beginning to utilize asparagine more effectively than, for example, the host cells, right? And so they're able to uptake and utilize this important amino acid in very effective ways, which are helping their cells grow at the expense of the host cells which surround it. And, uh, you know, long story short, we kind of got to the, the basic molecular underpinnings of why we think the uh, bacteria was doing so well. And, and basically the idea is that in space flight, that stress triggered the bacteria to turn on this pathway that was more efficiently utilizing this asparagine that gave it a, a, a survival advantage essentially in comparison to uh, you know, other cells that had not experienced uh, this, this uh, particular stress environment. And, and uh, so that was exciting, right? When, when you can really you know, drill down to the basics of what some of those changes are. So, yeah. so that was number one. Yeah, what you're talking about here is you said, um, you, know, you addressed this in, you know, in, in terms of how, what, what round perspective model organisms can provide. It's that, you, I think the word you used was subtlety, right? So this was, yeah. this was a sort of an example of exactly that. It's like a needle in the haystack. Like what is making, what is making this thing spread so much? And it drills down to a very specific amino acid. So this is, this is an example of what you're talking about. Perfect. All right. Example. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Example number two. Sorry to cut you off. Yeah, no, no, Gary. So, yeah, so example number two. Uh, again, a very different example because now I'm going to talk about a multicellular system. I'll talk about the fruit fly and I'll talk about the brain, right? The central nervous system, the brain. Uh, brain that, you know, we all have as, as humans and something that's critical to our performance, right? And everything that we do uh, on a daily basis. So, again, the fruit fly is simple though it may be. And though it may be something that you consider to be a pest or a menace when you see it, you know, in your kitchen. And uh, remember, fruit flies are much smaller than the house flies that you usually see in your house. Mm-hmm. Um, fruit flies are those little tiny flies that will buzz around, you know, rotting bananas or, um, you know, you'll see it you know, near garbage dumps, uh, etc. Um But again, they serve as a very important and have served for decades, actually, in science as a very important model organism. So they have a brain, uh, actually, you know, a brain that's extremely well studied. um, And and the fact that these model organisms are so well studied, well characterized, their genetics are very well understood, uh, really help us. So the second example I wanted to give is that Uh, We did this experiment on the International Space Station, uh, and actually both the examples that I gave you, the the first one with uh, the virulence and the bacteria, and this one were both done on the International Space Station, which has served as a very effective research platform uh, over the last several years. And so with this, this second experiment with the fruit flies, 
we were very fortunate to be able to fly it um, on a, a particular hardware called the the MVP, the multivariable um, uh, gravity platform, which has two compartments. It has two different centrifuges, and you can vary the gravity level that your samples are on in these two centrifuges. So this particular hardware piece had a compartment that we used uh, with a 1G setting. These are all identical samples coming from, uh, you know, uh, 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 being bred by uh, a common set of, of, of parents. And so these are identical um, uh, fruit flies that we're talking so we can really compare the data sets. So one third of them were put in a centrifuge uh, um, that was rotating at Earth's 1G in space. Uh, another one third was put in the uh, microgravity, the other compartment of this hardware, uh, where it was not spinning, so it was experiencing the microgravity uh, environment. It was just slowly spinning every once in a while, just to make sure you were e equilibrating the environment. You know, the the uh, atmospheric air and all of that inside. Um, but for the most part, it was not experiencing uh, any gravity. Uh, so the the samples were in what is called microgravity, and then one third of the samples was on Earth in a uh, an Earth uh, gravity environment, not spinning, and just, you know, being in that same identical hardware configuration, but on the ground as a control. And uh, what we found was something very, very interesting. We were interested in the brain, like I said, and 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 the changes that we would see in the brain. And so we now had three sample sets that we were comparing. We were looking at samples in space that were artificially given Earth's 1G. We had samples in space that was not experiencing any G like you would when you were in space. And then we had samples on the ground. So what we found when we came back down to Earth is that the samples that were in space in 1G and the samples on the ground that had been 1G were very similar to each other. Mm. But the samples that had been in space in microgravity, you know, had a lot more changes and defects seen in the brain compared to either the spaceflight 1G or the Earth's 1G, right? So what that meant is that in terms of neuronal changes and, and function, uh, having that centrifugation uh, and giving that artificial simulated 1G environment in space was very helpful. Now fast forward, and this is again where model organisms come in because in another month, those flies that came back from space had aged considerably. I mean, if you think about the fact that a fruit fly under very normal healthy conditions lives about you know two months-ish, um, so when you bring those flies back that are several weeks old already, you know, they've developed in space, they've grown in space, uh, you know, you bring them back a, a few weeks old, now you age them for another month. Now you're talking about really pretty advanced, um, you know, senior citizens in terms of fruit flies. <laughs> so what was really interesting is now when you did a comparison with these aged animals and you compared the space 
uh, flown uh, 1G, you know, the, the flies were exposed to 1G and the microgravity exposed uh, flies and the Earth's 1G control flies. Now you saw some differences. And when I say that, what do I mean? What we found is that the microgravity exposed flies, you know, after they were aged, they came back to Earth, they were treated normally like all the other flies. But now what you found is that, yes, the microgravity exposed flies still had the most amount of these changes, you know, in neuronal uh, structure and function. But the now the space flown 1G flies actually had more changes and differences compared to the Earth 1G uh, control flies that had never gone to space. So what do we think is happening? So, you know, one of the things that really excited us is one, it gave us many, many important pieces of information. One, it told us that artificial gravity can serve as an effective countermeasure, especially for those immediate changes that you see after spaceflight. However, just like, you know, experiences that one has, you know, if one has a viral infection on Earth sometimes, or, you know, you've heard of uh, long COVID, right? You know, folks get a COVID infection. And then in some people, there can be long-term changes and effects, right? So similarly, just like these unique uh, changes and environments can impact us on Earth, similarly, what we think is happening perhaps is that these flies that were exposed to, to space flight, yes, the artificial gravity definitely helped with some of those short-term changes, but there are probably some other changes. Um, you know, for example, a combination of other stressors like radiation, like we talked about, um, and, you know, there's elevated carbon dioxide buildup. We also talked about that. Combinations of these other stressors might actually uh, result in some other changes that persist in these long and get manifested in these long-term uh, uh, assessments that we do, right? Now, the good news is once, li like we said earlier with these model systems, once you understand it, you're in a better place than to go back and say, okay, so we, we know what we can do to, to help with some of these short-term changes in these particular organ systems. Um, now let's go back and think about, you know, how do we shield uh, these organisms or, or the crew, et cetera, in a way that's effective so that we reduce the impact of radiation, et cetera, et cetera, right? And that's the function of research is, is one, understanding what are some of these changes, short-term, long-term, um, and then what do we do about them? Yes, yeah, the solutions to solving the problems that you've identified through that research is, is wonderful. And that's such a good example because it's so holistic with all those different ways of analyzing the model organisms. Absolutely fascinating research, um, Sharmila. And, uh, you know, I, I bet you in those moments where you, after all this, you know, it's, it's, pro it's a lot of work, I understand, to be able to design an experiment and come up with an idea, pitch that idea, and then fly it and get to those results. So, you know, when, when you talk about these things that you're finding, I can only imagine the excitement that you were experiencing after so long of of, of finding out, you know, what we're going to do and, and and how we're going to solve some of these issues. 
And then having a better understanding through that research on the back end, thinking like, man, all that all that blood and sweat that I put into to the long hours <laughs> that I put into the research was worth it because yeah. we we just advanced our understanding of of what happens what happens in space. Exactly, you hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> now, um, so so just to, we've we've zoomed in now to a couple of examples, zooming back out for just a second. Um, to understand, yeah. you're part of uh, an organization at NASA called BPS, Biological and Physical Sciences, yeah. and uh, it, it it it's in the name, right? You have the biological, you have the physical. I think you're more on the on the biological. So um, when when you uh, it, as part of your work, as part of what you do mm-hmm. today now at NASA mm-hmm. within BPS, mm-hmm. how would you describe mm-hmm. your role in enabling biological science? Yes. So I'm the program scientist for space biology Mm -hmm. in the biological physical sciences division at NASA headquarters. So as such, I'm responsible for the strategic planning and management of all of the space biology science research uh, that we fund uh, from NASA. And as, as I mentioned before, of course, you know, we do this with the help a lot of, of wonderful people within our space biology team. And so when, you know, we, we've talked a lot about your research and talked about model organisms, but if you were to take a holistic view of, you know, what is it in space biology, what kinds of research are you covering? You know, it, is the, does it go much broader than, what, than some of the examples that we've talked about already? Yes. And in fact, let me also broaden it further to what, you know, biological and physical sciences, you know, what our division does overall. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that we examine phenomena under space-like conditions that help us better understand how these systems function in the novel environment of space. And this understanding really helps contribute to making significant scientific and technological advancements that not only enable space exploration, you know, for future, for long duration, uh, human space exploration, but also benefits life on Earth. Um, So that's sort of the bigger picture of what biological and physical sciences does. Mm Uh, in our division. And then specifically, as you asked for space biology, yes, indeed. In fact, you know, I've given you a few examples of uh, model systems and and science that I have been um, involved in over the decades. However, uh, really big picture for space biology is that we use a variety of different model systems. Some are, for example, you know, three-dimensional tissue systems um, in petri dishes or, or, or in, um, you know, what they call in vitro cultures uh, or small little organoids, you know, little brains or little kidneys in a tissue dish. Uh, to understand how they are going to react to this novel environment. Um, We use a variety of different model systems, and the questions we ask are also very varied. You know, Mm -hmm. down to the molecular level, how does a gene and how does your DNA uh, expression, you know, how, how the genes, which are these little uh, in you know important units within your DNA, they 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 code for proteins that do the function and and RNA that do different functions in your body. How do these respond in the environment? Down from that to the large big picture holistic 
um, level of how do all the different organ systems in your body react and integrate and how does the organism as a whole change and respond to the novel environment of space so so all of that and and not only that you know we're also talking like we talked about microbial systems and plants you know plants have, are a very important part of all of this um, because on earth for example you know can't function without having green around us, without having our salad, without, um, you know, smelling that flower. And not only is it important for us nutritionally, but they help us psychologically, right? And it's going to be the same in space. We're going where we go. And when we want to live sustainably, we're going to need to have plants around us. So, so understanding plants, microbes, animal systems, all of this will be an important part of our journey uh, back to the moon and onto Mars. Absolutely. And that research is continuing constantly. Um, just even even now coming up, we're recording this ahead of uh, a cargo launch to the International Space Station, uh, SpaceX CRS-29. Um, and it's mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of science going up there. Sharmila, you told me there's even a couple of biological and physical sciences experiments uh, going up on this yeah. on this cargo mission. Can you tell me about some of those? Yes, absolutely. In fact, let me talk to you about, let me tell you a little bit about three different space biology experiments that are going up in in SpaceX 29 and Mm -hmm. and that we are very excited about. One of them is called PHO6, and it is actually looking at a plant uh, system and uh, something that all of us can uh, uh, identify with very well. Uh, it's actually a tomato plant. And we are going to be looking at wild type and immune deficient tomatoes, um, you know, uh, well, tomato plants. And we're actually going to be looking at their uh, immune defense response and and how this uh, changes in spaceflight and comparing the wild type and the immune deficient genetic version of the tomato plant. So so we're really looking forward to that. That's the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one, and I think these, these sort of uh, uh, work well to um, round off how we use different model systems to ask different questions. Mm-hmm. So the second one, which is called uh, bacterial adhesion and corrosion, this is a collaboration between in within our division between the physical sciences and space biology. So it's a nice, nice example of again, you know, this holistic approach of how we can answer a lot of different questions uh, with our experiments. And here for for bacterial adhesion and corrosion, or BAC as we call it, um, we are investigating the formation of biofilms. Biofilms are these tough. Um, Uh, robust uh, formations that bacteria will often have on different surfaces. Um, You will see that, you know, in your home sometimes if some area hasn't been cleaned too well, you know, you'll form this this black uh, film Mm -hmm. on various surfaces. So so that's a biofilm. And uh, we are going to be looking at in this particular experiment, the the principal investigators, are going to look at the formation of biofilm on different surfaces like uh, stainless steel surfaces and how they form in space. 
as well as how different kinds of disinfectants might be able to help us clear the, the biofilms that are formed under these different conditions. So that's the second experiment. And then the third experiment, another yet another model system asking yet a different question, uh, which is called RR20. And this particular experiment is using the rodent model system to understand how uh, the, there is the change in the estrogen receptor uh, expression during spaceflight. Uh, space we have evidence from past shuttle missions that there are changes in the expression of these estrogen receptors uh, found in the body. And uh, we're going to use the rodent model to understand that because there's, no, you know, a very important um, uh, uh, result here to be had, which is the estrogen receptor also uh, can influence bone loss, right? And so we want to, again, get to the basis of we know that over a period of time in low gravity, um, bone density is lost and we want to understand some of the causes of that and 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 so looking at the expression of estrogen receptor can help us answer uh, some of those questions to see if they maybe exacerbate uh, bone loss in space and so anyway these are three different examples you know the tomato plant uh, bacterial biofilm formation um, and then changes uh, potentially in estrogen receptor and bone density changes um, in three different model systems that we are looking forward to flying in terms of space biology payloads on SpaceX 29. Yeah, and it shows that round, the, the different kinds of model organisms that you can use to, to answer different questions. And, and I think it's just so representative of, of all the work that is done in space biology and what you do, Sharmila. I wanted to wrap up with sort of this idea is, you know, I think I think we've done a good job of stressing the importance of, of model organisms and what they bring in terms of our understanding uh, to science and just uh, broadening our perspective. I wonder, though, as uh, as we're looking ahead to um, to an expansion, I'll call it, of of uh, operations and science and, and what we can have possible for us in the future. You know, we're talking p potentially multiple commercial destinations with scientific facilities in low Earth orbit. We're expanding our presence to the moon. Um, there's a lot of these there's a lot of places we're going that I wonder from your perspective have posed some some unique and interesting questions from a space biology perspective that perhaps you're looking mm -hmm. forward to, uh, whether it's continuing in low Earth orbit, whether it's on the moon and beyond, um, some things that maybe you're looking forward to in the world of space biology. Absolutely, yes. And and I think that's that's a really wonderful way to round off this discussion because uh, we are, to answer your question, we are absolutely looking forward to having the commercial low Earth orbit platform so we can continue the research that we have started um, and have learned a lot from the International Space Station. We need to be able to continue to do that because, uh, you know, low Earth orbit is continue, it will continue to be more accessible. We'll have probably more crew available to help us with our experiments. Um, but then we're going to need to understand, you know, expand that research, extend it from low Earth orbit to the lunar surface, and then use the, you know, just like we're saying, we need to piggyback off everything we learn 
to help us with the next step. So what we learned on ISS is something we need to continue on those commercial low Earth orbit platforms. And then we need to piggyback off what we learned from low Earth orbit to the lunar surface because on the lunar surface, we're going to have increased radiation levels. We're going to have different uh, complexion of radiation on the surface of the moon. Um, we're going to have different gravity levels. We're going to have partial you know, gravity on the surface of the moon. So very different from low Earth orbit orbital platforms like the ISS or the commercial platforms. So we're going to have to expand our knowledge to learn how those different environments will now function on biological systems. And then we're going to have to do long duration experiments on the moon with these systems that we just talked about so that we can understand how we're going to transition and do those two to three year long round trip missions to Mars. And then how we're going to grow our plants and uh, sustain those you know, insects that are going to help pollinate our plants and how we are going to um, have crew there sustainably, uh, you know, with those plants and with those um, microbial environments. You know, we all carry microbes on our bodies and, and in our bodies. We will be taking all of that with us. And how does that whole biological ecosystem function, you know, transitioning from low Earth orbit to the lunar surface to Mars and uh, and on our way to and from Mars. And so um, I think this is an inherent part and an important part of that science research journey uh, where we use what we're learning at every step to expand and extend our horizons. Wonderfully said, Sharmila. And uh, just... I mean, in general, the the work that that you're talking about here just uh, t to me sounds so incredibly important, and just that rounding out that perspective of what happens um, is just a, a wonderful thing. And and getting an insight into some of the things that you, that you've learned just in general over time kind of makes me excited for you know only what we can learn in the future. So, with that, Sharmila Bhattacharya, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast. This was so cool to be talking with you. I'm glad we finally were able to connect and uh, wishing you and the team all the best of luck on uh, some of the research coming up and and all that we can learn uh, when it comes to spaceflight and, uh, and our understanding of biological systems. So thank you so much. Absolutely, Gary. It was a real pleasure speaking with you and our hope. I hope our paths cross again in the future. And thank you so much for all the work that you do. I think it's so important to to uh, tell, you know, the folks out there who may be interested or have never thought about spaceflight research about um, some of the things that um, go on here that's so exciting. Very, very cool. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. I appreciate the time. Take care. Take care. Bye. Welcome to space.
Hey, thanks for sticking around. Such a wonderful conversation with Sharmila. She brought a ton of energy to the conversation, and uh, I hope you enjoyed and hope you learned something today. You can check nasa.gov for the latest happening across the agency and nasa.gov slash ISS for everything happening aboard the International Space Station. You can check out nasa.gov slash podcast to listen to any of the podcasts we have across the agency. You can also find us there and our full collection of episodes, which you can listen to in no particular order. Check out science.nasa.gov under Biological and Physical Sciences, and you can dig through papers under NASA's Animal Biology Program and many of the other things they have uh, within BPS, Biological and Physical Sciences. On social media, you can check us out on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, X, and Instagram. You can use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show or ask a question. Just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on October 18th, 2023. Thanks to Will Flato, Dane Turner, Abby Graff, Jane Jennings, Dominique Crespo, Destiny Duran, Melanie White Lyons, and Kira Mangan. And of course, thanks again to Dr. Sharmila Bhattacharya for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.